How are we doing? Welcome to the start of the week, the Not The Top 20 podcast. We are sponsored by Betfair and we like to talk all things EFL and this week a little bit of FA Cup first round action as well. In the championship, it was a weekend of classic away performances and wins. We had shock and awe in the FA Cup first round as always. Bit of that at the end. We also had another manager getting sexy with us. Which manager used the phrase, we almost got a little bit horny? <laughs> it's not Keith Curl. I'm Ali Maxwell. George Ellix with me. Hello, friend. Hello. All well this week? Feels like a great week to me, yeah. Um, good way to start off the pod by talking about being horny. Good way to kick off the week. Keith Curls really made this pod take a turn, I tell you, since the start of last week. <laughs> Shall we talk about Monday morning's breaking manager news before our championship weekend roundup it's never a dull managerial monday is it at the moment um john percy among others but i always go to john percy first for news he's reporting that nathan jones is and possibly as we speak talking to southampton about their vacant managers the reporting is that he is their target and that they've got him lined up to replace ralph hassenhuttle now george it's not confirmed I've not seen any scarves being held up, but it sounds fairly legit. What's your initial reaction on Nathan Jones to Southampton? Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird one. I, th- I think to start off, it wouldn't be a massive surprise if by the time people are listening to this, um, a scarf has been held up and it's Nathan Jones holding a Luton scarf and maybe signing a new contract. You know, that Ooh. that is certainly, well, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you know, given that this is either going to age very well or very badly, you know, we should at this point say, it's not signed, sealed and delivered, even though Percy um, is is a pretty reliable guy uh, to get your news off. What do I think of it? I mean, it's it's a funny one because normally I would look at any EFL manager getting an opportunity as something that is very exciting for us as people who, you know, want to see EFL talent succeeding and doing well. But for some reason with Jones, he's just so wedded to Luton's success that it, it kind of feels... Um, and because of, you know, once burnt, twice shy, um, after what happened at, at Stoke, um, it, it, I feel less excited by this as I maybe would for other um, EFL talents getting a Premier League shot. I feel sorry for for Luton fans as well. Uh, and I really hope the relationship between Luton fans and, and Jones, if he does move on, doesn't sour to the extent that it did that it did formally. I've said on the pod before that with Jones, it always felt to me like he... You know, the job at Stoke, even though I I think in, in different circumstances it could have ended very differently, the job at Stoke didn't really look like the ideal job for him in terms of the way that he manages a club. I think going into a club who where the ex- expectations are so high, I think they were favourites to to go up that season, where the, the quality of player is, you know, suddenly working with international players who are on Premier League contracts, whose futures at the club are, are probably in question anyway. It's so different to the small nuclear siege mentality that he implemented at, at Luton throughout from from the League Two days, even as the style of play changed up into the into the Championship, and then he was able to redo re-implement as well. I think that he's got a quite interesting record that would appeal to a Premier League club, where his player development is so good. But it's not just youth team development. Like yes, you look at James Justin and Jack Stacey, you know, even Elijah Adebayo, and you look at that he is he's willing to invest a lot of trust into players who are young and don't have much experience. But it's also his ability to get players 
in the twilight of their career operating at a level that you didn't necessarily expect them to you know henry lansbury is the is the clear one when talking about that but you've also got you know suddenly getting a tune out of cameron jerome in, in the championship when no one probably would have touched him uh, in the league i think for, for southampton you have quite a clear similar split identity of squad where they've got they've invested a lot into young players recently they've got some older players who are um, still key parts of the squad. I can see why he would appeal. I also think the Southampton job going into a club who are in a relegation battle, who don't have necessarily the technical advantage over their opposition in many matches over the course of the season, who have the best dead ball taker in, in the Premier League. I think it's quite a clever bit of talent ID from Saints to look at Jones as being someone who could come in and recreate what he's done at, at Luton. Um, I've seen a lot of people getting concerned about the style of play being different to Hassan Hootel. I don't really buy that. I don't think mm. Southampton have been a possession-based team for the last few years. I also think Jones has proven himself to be able to set up a team to play in multiple different ways and multiple different styles. They're an expansive team um, in the in the promotions out of out of League Two and League One. So um, sad. I'd be sad for Luton fans, but as a Nathan Jones fan, um, I'm I'm sad that we won't see this. You know, especially having backed them to go up this season, <laughs> we won't see. Uh, if he does go, we won't see the the end of the second iteration of Leighton, uh, of, of Nathan Jones at, at Luton, ending in a promotion. Um, but I, you know, I will certainly um, look out for their results more than I would have done previously, in, in the hope that he does. Um, he continues that the great work that he's done because you know if you're if you're looking at the job, if you take out the gap in the middle and you look at the job that Nathan Jones has done at Luton, then it's probably the best job anyone's done in in EFL football. You know, easily predating the pod, especially mm. at one club. I'm fascinated in, in how how they've identi- identified Jones uh, as their main man over, let's say, other options. A lot of Premier League clubs are now able to tempt a lot of foreign managerial coaching talent. Even clubs, you know, battling relegation in the Premier League are often able to coax managers who are in the top six or the top ten of other European leagues. I, I would have thought maybe for Saints, let's say a, a German manager with a with a kind of gig and pressy style play, but getting Jones in first and foremost from a character and personalities perspective when facing a relegation battle is, I think, something I can certainly understand given the the way that he likes to frame things uh, and and the success that he's had in in outperforming Luton's place in the Championship food chain. But I I agree with you. I think broadly this is not going to be a removal of playing style either. I think you're looking at a team whose sort of central cornerstones are high intensity, um, often meaning high press, but not always, just generally quite high intensity, um, fast movement with and without the ball, and a lot of focus on attacking quickly in transition when they do win the ball back. Now, Nathan Jones's Luton team certainly play with intensity, especially without the ball, and also tend to attack quickly and directly as well. So I don't think it's a big um, removal from how Southampton play. Yes, in the last year or so, Luton have gone aerial for quite a significant chunk of time now. But as you've alluded to, (laughs) there wasn't the style of play in League Two when they scored 94 goals in winning promotion. It wasn't the style of play in League One when they scored 90 goals in winning the league in back-to-back seasons. You know, at that point, all the chat was about Nathan Jones's diamond and how fluid it was and how great to watch it was. And it worked very well out of possession uh, as well. The, the 4-2-2-2, which is how I understand Southampton's general formation to have been um, in the last few years, that's not a million miles off, really. So, um, yeah, pressing quite a lot, attacking swiftly and directly. That's Luton Town. That's also Southampton over the last few years. So I quite like it from from that point of view. Um, of course, he, he's 
he's done an unbelievable job. And I, I don't think, like you, that there are any particular parallels with the Stoke job. I think I think most people by now agree that we're at the point where we don't judge the managers that have struggled to turn Stoke around in the last five years <laughs> as much as we judge Stoke for being quite difficult to turn around. Um, as, as for whether a manager should take the risk of a job when he's got such a good thing going at Luton, what do you make of... of any discussion around whether this is a, a good decision for him to leave a good thing? I mean, this was the, the key discussion around Rob Edwards in the summer was when he left Forest Green to go to Basket Case Watford. The worst possible case came true at Watford for Edwards where he left, he didn't get given any time and he was sacked with his foot barely in the door. I am pretty confident if you said to Rob Edwards right now, do you regret leaving Forest Green for Watford? He would probably start laughing. Um, this is, I mean, I, I know for Luton, especially getting into the playoff semi-finals, they will feel like Jones is able to um, achieve what, where he will get into at Southampton with that club. However, you don't get that many opportunities in football. Football is an unbelievably fickle game, especially if he, Jones knows that himself, having taken the Stoke job. And he probably would, would have been well, there's no chance he'd have got another championship job that wasn't the Luton job off the back of that. Um, you look at the previous you know, managers in this role, you've got a guy in Rizzo Pochettino who's gone on to manage some of the biggest clubs or you know, one of the biggest clubs in, in world football and, and get to a Champions League final with Spurs. You've got um, Ralph Hasenhutl who came to Sampton having managed the Champions League side previously in, in Leipzig. This is a huge job with everything that comes with that in terms of financial um Remuneration. If he is sat suit long, not long after he turns up, he'll be compensated for that. I'm afraid, you know, the the romantic side of me would love him to stay, and there's every chance he might do that because we do sometimes see managers deciding. You know, you look at Mark Bonner at, at Cambridge, but you know, is Bonner regretting not going to Rotherham now? I don't think he would laugh at you if you asked him that question. I think the regret would come not backing yourself and taking a chance on yourself to to, to try and hit that ceiling if it exists. It's very easy to turn down job interviews on Football Manager. That's for sure. I think it's a little yeah. less easy uh, in real life. I'm actually going to going to bring up Football Manager again uh, as part of the chat about money because no one knows the specifics of player or manager contracts, and anyone who says that they do is is probably wrong. Um, the internet will sometimes offer you what they think are players' wages or managers' wages, and I have next to no confidence in any of the sources on the internet. Now, obviously, Football Manager has a player wage and a manager wage for, for all, well, for every person in the database, and they don't purport to know exactly. They are not saying that this is absolutely true. I still believe, because I know the way the game is put together, that it's probably the best place to get a ballpark figure, right? So I had a quick look this morning because pulling up Football Manager is always a delight when I can call it research and work. Um, Nathan Jones's wage at Luton on the game is seven grand a week. Uh, Ralph Hassenhutl's wage on the game is 72 grand a week. So... <laughs> In football manager wage terms, 10 times as much. Let's say we don't fully trust that. We want to be a bit more conservative. Let's say even if it was a leap of, of five times your weekly wage, your annual wage, it's still incredibly significant and life-changing, basically. And for those who say, well, what did you say? Once burnt, twice shy, rather than once bitten, twice shy, about the stoke yeah. thing. As you know, I don't get anywhere near animals. So. <laughs> That's true. More likely to be burnt than bitten. <laughs> 
but also I just hate this. I hate this mentality and it's made easy. You know, judging people that you don't know is easy. Judging people when you don't need to think about their actual feelings and emotions or give any thought to how they might be thinking. It's very, very easy to do. It's something that happens a lot. I dare say we do it sometimes on this podcast. It's 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 kind of human nature. But this whole thing about like, oh, well, remember when you left for Stoke and that didn't work. So you better be careful. Like just because you, you do something once and it doesn't go the exact way that you want it to go doesn't mean you can't do something like that again. What what a crazy mm. and restrictive way that would be to live, right? That would be a shame. As you can tell, I'm, I'm kind of all for it from a Jones point of view while sharing your romantic sadness about him not being Luton Town manager anymore because that has been uh, a real staple of the last few years. Uh, and overall, yeah, he's done a top three, probably top one managerial job in the EFL over the last six years. But I like a world where that is followed by a Premier League opportunity. So... There we are. Uh, Nathan Jones is not the new Southampton manager as we record, but he might be by the time you listen, or he might be. They've released a statement since we've been recording Ooh. saying that they've, they've, they've accepted a um, an approach from Southampton um, for him to speak to them after the game against Stoke on Tuesday night and can all the fans ensure they get behind Nathan and the boys. So I think basically he'll manage tomorrow night and then he'll he'll leave before the weekend. Seems to be the... You know, unless talks don't go well, I guess. But yeah, when it, when it gets to that stage, it feels unlikely. Interesting. Well, uh, we got games in the champ tomorrow night. We had games on the weekend. Let's talk about those uh, now. George, uh, do you want to do a bad cop to kick us off? Was there anything particular in the championship this weekend that you saw and you went, no, absolutely <laughs> no, not for me? Um, Burnley's set piece defending, I think. <laughs> That's the quite aggressive bad cop. I mean... <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was one of the, uh, it may be your good cop because of the game. And if it is, I, I won't go anywhere near. It was. United. It yeah. Well, but I'll, I'll ignore Sheffield United entirely then. Let's do this massive game. And I'll, despite we used to do the match in focus, I'll take Burnley and you can take, um, and you can take Sheffield United and I'll be the okay. bad cop and you can be the good cop. Lovely. Um, yeah, it was obviously the, the big game of the weekend. Um, and I was excited to settle down and watch two of the, most interesting teams and two of the best teams and the two promotion favourites in the championship. And in the first half, it kind of lived up to it where <clears throat> Burnley were um, two went up at half time, pretty much deservingly so, even though it was two Jack Robinson howlers that gifted them the goals. But it was just great to watch them playing their football. I'd, base, I'd love to have a season ticket at Burnley at the moment because um, it is just incredible to watch the way that they play the, um, the, just they make the pitch just so big. You basically watch them just thinking like, why isn't it always this easy to make games so open? Like I don't understand why teams ever struggle to to find space. Um, but it is very clever and they do it well. And they did very well, didn't they, to get the dribbly Belgian on the ball 1v1. And Stevens yeah. and Robinson were struggling to get near Hating him. it. Yeah, I mean, ever since, I feel like I cursed those two. I mean, Benson was superb. I thought both Matson and Zaruri were incredibly poor throughout the whole game, basically, both in terms of their, their use of the ball um, for a side who... Yeah, for a side who who you know had the highest possession percentage in the league, it was bizarre to see them being so wasteful. And before the second and the third goal, both of them, Matson was caught in possession when he had about five opportunities to play the ball easily. Zaruri went down the line and tried to take on his man on the outside and ran out of play when he had about four men inside. It just seemed a bit naive. Um, but that's not the reason why they lost the game. The reason why they lost the game is because they absolutely, yeah, expletive it uh, when the when the ball came into the box because. 
It's weird. Murich is one of those keepers where you look at him and you're like, oh, he's massive. He must be dominant in the air. But actually, he's a very good shot stopper. He's good with the ball at his feet and he hates it when it's anywhere in his vicinity around his head. Um, and that was evident throughout and it's been evident for for a lot of the season so far. Um, but every time the ball was either launched into the box from a corner, a wide set piece or a throw in, um, absolute carnage ensued. And it, was, it wasn't even just the first ball. It was inability to track runners, the far post, which led to both Sheffield United's first and second goals. It was an inability to clear the ball that led to the fourth goal. I mean, the, the fifth goal was the only one from open play and, and ball that was offside in the build up. Um, but the four goals that came before that were just chronic set piece defend- defending. And it's funny when you think of it being Vincent Company who is in charge, a man who would have headed his gran in order to get the ball um, out of the box. And, you know, at least now, I think when your weakness is, is exposed as much as it has been, as it was on the early game on Saturday. Um, and I'm sure we will start to see teams really try and target um, burn even more so from set pieces. You can be absolutely sure that any work and all work that's going on right now. Um, you know, I, I think they let, they lost not having Rodriguez. I think he's a, a big player to have in both boxes. He's, you know, he's pretty aer- good aerially, uh, defensively as well. Brownhill, another one. I think both Harwood Bellis and Bayer are kind of ball-playing centre-backs. Harwood Bellis made one brilliant stop, but they're not necessarily those dominant aerial centre-backs you expect. So, yeah, company has work to do there. I mean, I'm as a paid-up member of the Burnley fan club, I'm not too concerned because um on the balance of play and open play they were still pretty good but um yeah they need to tighten up from those balls flung into the box it is amazing isn't it when you get pockets in games where set pieces in particular are just like like as soon as the ball goes out for a corner or a throw in or a free kick everyone's just got the feeling that something's going to come from it you know you get you get lots of matches every weekend across the leagues a team that are broadly good at set pieces and maybe a team that concede lots from them. It doesn't always mean that it's like absolute panic stations every time the ball goes out of play uh, for a corner, but that was absolutely the case yeah. here. You know, we saw a hint of it in the first half, didn't we? And then in the second half, just absolutely bizarre. This game is my good cop because I think basically each week, what I want from this segment is is to flag up and highlight something that makes me think, man, I love this game. Man, I love these leagues because uh, I do love this game. I do love these leagues. And and this game was it this weekend. The best televised game of the season in the championship, surely so far from a neutral point of view. Uh, the first half itself was, I thought, pretty amazing. 2-1 Burnley at half time. I think leaving aside set pieces, both teams' systems tactically and their intentions, both wanting to win the game, made for a perfect match um, for, the, for the neutral. And don't forget that Matson had hit the bar in the first half. McBurney had had one off the line as well, so it could have been more than the three goals. Um, Benson, obviously, the, the dribbly Belgian, the star. Uh, Robert, Robinson, sort of unfortunate for the first goal. When you call uh, him the dribbly Belgian, you're not forgetting there's another dribbly Belgian in quite close proximity, or actually quite far apart because they make the pitch so big. But 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 Benson is so dribbly. And Zaruri is <laughs> kind of like a smooth mover, I would say. I'd say Zaruri is like the smooth Belgian. And, and okay. Benson... Benson just like reminds me a little bit of my dog who's a terrier when she's when she's like when she's excited just a small thing moving at incredible speed and somehow still kind of in control and very very difficult to stop but yeah Burnley leading at half time with a nine point lead at that point over Sheffield United as it stood but it did not stand for long because in the second half a 35 minute period where Sheffield United had 18 shots to two 
<laughs> scoring four goals in the process, feasting from set pieces, as you've said, you know, either winning first contact on the majority of them. But even when Burnley got ahead on it, Sheffield United just had it all boxed off, it felt. No exit whatsoever. The ball would come straight back in. We saw a McBurney goal, a Jack Robinson redemption goal after his poor first half, and then a, an Ahmed Hodzic goal as well. Uh, and then My wife talk- was over the moon for Jack Robinson. She really struggled uh, with his mental state after the first two goals. was really worried about him. She was like, what's going to happen to him? Is he going to be okay? And then uh, was over the moon when, when she saw him celebrating in the corner. Redemption stories are universal not just specific to sport, but but any, everyone loves a redemption story in any setting. Uh, and then you have to say Norwood was magisterial uh, and his ball to pick out Bulldog over the top was was fantastic. Very similar to Doyle's pass over the top to Bulldog that we spoke about last weekend. McBurney slotting in the rebound. Uh, I need to talk Ollie McBurney because he had seven shots on target <laughs> in this game, scored two goals. Mad. He won the most aerial duels in the game. Um, he goes joint top of the goal scorer charts with Njai, with Yates, Puki, and Rodriguez. He's only played the equivalent of about 10 90s. Most of those guys are around 16, 17. His numbers are an absolute joke. Um, I, I actually wasted some time earlier looking at FB Ref to present them on the pod, uh, and I'll I'll go into why this was time wasted in a second. But broadly, McBurney has more than one shot per game than anyone else in the league. And if that doesn't sound like a lot, trust me, it is. <laughs> more than half a shot on target per game, more than anyone else in the league. Um, he takes his shots from closer to the goal than anyone else in the league that's had more than 30 shots. His average shot comes from 11 yards out on average. So a good XG per shot, you'd say. Um, he's got the highest XG in the league um, and is averaging 0.15 XG per 90, more than the next best, uh, which is Chapom. Um, now, 0.15 XG per 90, again, doesn't sound like loads. Over the course of a full season, that's about six or seven goals, uh, or six or seven expected goals, we should say. So the numbers are incredible. Um, Ollie Walker of StatsBomb, who's a great friend of the pod, followed it in with a tweet saying that McBurney is currently, compared to Mitro last season, who scored 43 goals in the league, he's exceeding him in per 90 for XG, for shots, for XG per shot, for touches in the box, for aerial wins, uh, and better when it comes to turning the ball over as well. So he's looking after the ball better than Mitro did per 90. Absolutely monster numbers. And I think there's another part to this, George, which I think it's going a bit under the radar because I think generally people just struggle to get their heads around this, given that he had such a long barren spell, given that his price tag was so high, given that his struggles in the Premier League and then in the Championship last season fit the narrative of him not being good enough and Sheffield United having wasted loads of money on him and, and a bad spell for the club. But this is also why you don't, don't write strikers off. This is why saying stuff like he's not good enough or just a bad finisher, it doesn't really fly because you can't say that about Bert McBurney right now given what he's doing right now. So was he a bad finish, was he a bad finisher or a bad player and now he's a good one? No, of course. That's not how it works. It's, the context has changed. I think any sweeping statements about players' abilities that don't acknowledge that they are fluid <laughs> and output is fluid. And um, you know, if you take the McBurney narrative arc and you compare that to the Dwight Gale narrative arc, it just makes fools of anybody who will take a player and definitively uh, assess what they can and cannot do. 
based on on recent uh, or not even recent, just career achievements, especially with a striker. Where if you're a centre back or you're a you know you're a goalkeeper or a midfielder or whatever, or you're a winger. I mean, a winger maybe a little bit less so. You are going to get constantly tested in terms of your skill set. If you're a striker and to an extent a winger, you are reliant on other people to provide the ball to you in certain areas in order to impact games the way that you should do. So for McBurney, he's clearly somebody who playing in a team and playing in a system where you can get the ball into his feet or onto his head inside the area. He is going to be effective. Um, and confidence obviously breeds a different level of performance as well. Um, you know, we're going through it at the moment at Oxford where a lot of Oxford fans are saying that Matty Taylor's passed it. He's done because he's gone two months without scoring. It's just not how it works. If you're, you know, if suddenly you can physically see a player unable to run, then maybe, or if a player, you know, if, but if, if you're just playing in a side that can't create, then as a striker, your, your role is basically defunct. Mm. Um, so yes, I, I agree with what you're saying. Well, he is a man possessed right now, an absolute animal on the pitch. He's going after everything, getting on the end of everything and, and then going back for more and more. And it's it's great to see and very, very valuable for Sheffield United. Uh, let's whiz through some championship action, George, because we had midweekers as well. A couple of teams who won two games in a week. We like to give them their credit, give them their due. One of them is Coventry City, who beat Watford 1-0 on the weekend. Little squeaky Robins and the gang working their way up the table. <laughs> Yeah, they always look to be in a false position and that has become abundantly clear um, this week where, uh, as you say, um, a lot of off-field issues going into the week, but um, no bother. I mean, they've been used to that over the last few years and two really impressive 1-0 wins against the Blackburn side who were second uh, in the table when they beat them and it was a dominant win as well. You know, they were the better team throughout the game. Uh, and then going to Watford, a game where it's pretty unlikely, I think you're going to go and really... Um, you know, dominate the ball and dominate the chances. But even though they only had about 30% possession, they were decent value for their win. I mean, Watford fans will be incredibly frustrated that Ishmael Yassar, um managed to scoop the ball over the bar from about three yards in what was their their one and only big chance. But if you take that out of it, um, Coventry were the bigger threat up until when they scored. And then after that, Saar, Saar shot on a kind of 65 minutes. Um, they only had three more efforts later on in the game and none of them were particularly good ones so um, no I don't think we can take anything away from Coventry here it was the perfect away win yes they were fortunate with one big chance going their way but they deserved to be ahead when they went ahead Um, and Mark Robbins continues just to do a phenomenal job at Coventry who's um, have left that 24th berth well behind in their rearview mirror now and they are up in 15th and only going one way got some good numbers on Twitter yesterday just purely tweeting screenshots from different stages of Coventry's goal, just basically saying how bad is Watford's defensive structure right here. And unfortunately, mm. I think basically the left-back Kamara is, is mostly at fault, who just like sprints forward, completely leaving his position to press a centre-back, but he's nowhere near the centre-back. And by the time he gets there, the ball has been played into Harmer's feet. Yes, I got it right. <laughs> well Harmer. done. Um, the ball's been played into Harmer's feet. Then Harmer has the simplest pass through the lines into Palmer. They've bypassed like six Watford players in about, no, seven Watford players in two simple straight passes. And then Kamara's left back position is vacant. So the ball's played out wide, crossed in and and Gyok scores the winning goal. The Watford fans are, are the latest set of opposition fans just drooling over Gyokoresh. Someone tweeted something about him being like six foot three, 
and he can control the ball like Messi, and it's just not fair. You shouldn't be allowed to have him at this level. So that was good to see. Uh, and I noticed that Casey Palmer's had having sort of quite quietly just growing mm. in confidence. He's had a good good month or so, a couple of assists, goal as well. And um, Coventry moving in the right direction, defensively looking a lot more sound as well compared to early on in the season. That uh, did get unlocked by that magical Yasser Aspria pass ahead of Sars. Very confusing miss. Um, Blackburn also won. No, they didn't. Blackburn lost in midweek and then <laughs> and then won here. Uh, West Brom are the other team with two wins in a week. Uh, I'm going to get on to West Brom's game in a second. Let's just tie off Blackburn. Back to winning ways. 1-0 win against Huddersfield. Um, their 1-0 defeat in midweek matched with their 1-0 win here means still no equalising goals scored in Blackburn's 20 league games this season. Yeah, Jack Redoni had a very good chance to do so um, at 1-0 and kind of managed to Bluff, his shot from about seven yards out, a one nil down. Uh, but that was Huddersfield's only real, um, you know, only real chance of note. They were pretty poor. Uh, having picked them up on the betting show as being coming into here is as likely outsiders. Um, Blackburn, you know, I'm sure Blackburn fans are pretty bored of tuning into this Monday show and, and hearing about how they were fortunate winners. But that absolutely wasn't the case here. They were very deserving of their three points. They didn't create loads. Moment of quality from Ben, ben Breit and Diaz, as we'd expect from him to, to get one nil up. And then they looked the more likely to go and get the second. So bouncing back impressively after a, a midweek defeat. Yes, it's against bottom of the table, Huddersfield. But as I mentioned, there had been some signs of life under the new manager. Um, but this was a very regulation one nil home win. And uh, yeah, does enough to kind of settle the the nerves after a, um, a disappointing midweek showing. What a lovely player Brayton Diaz is and what a lovely role that he has in this team. Two or three good opportunities for him here. Um, took one of them, was the key man yet again. Um, very little being offered by Huddersfield going forward at the moment and, and lots of injuries at the back kind of undermining uh, Fotheringham's attempts to, to build from the back and build a solid defensive structure. Uh, not good there and they are getting somewhat cut adrift at the bottom of the league table. Um, I was at QPR nil West Brom one. In fact, I was in the uh, West Bromwich Albion away end, which means I've had the Lord is my shepherd stuck in my head for the last 36 hours. Um, not a game with tons of action, if I'm honest, but a few interesting takeaways that hopefully uh, I can share. There was a big early chance for Dean Garner and being harsh, you'd say he basically missed an open goal, but it came flying off the keeper at quite an awkward height, sort of knee height. So I, I wasn't too um, critical of him to put that one wide. Then QPR basically just had one really slick move in the first half. Um, really nice play. Willock was back here, which is big for them. Um, and him and Chair and and Tim Irogbanam on loan from uh, from Villa. You know, they can combine nice. quite nicely. Uh, Irogbanam's shot uh, went wide. And then one piece of quality chest control from the otherwise quite quiet Lyndon Dykes. Uh, a left foot half volley was saved very well by Palmer. The match was decided in the second half uh, when it didn't feel like either team was likely to score. It was a set piece. What done it? A brilliant swift delivery. Uh, and Kyle Bartley uh, headed home. And just a good solid away performance from West Brom. I, th I think nil-nil probably would have been maybe the fairest result. But um, with no recognised striker, Matt Phillips playing up front, who started quite well but faded pretty quickly, to be honest. Um this is what it's all about for them to start with under Corbran. And it's just getting him some early credit in the bank, I think, to get two wins in a week. They weren't particularly good in possession. I'm not going to sit here and say they played brilliantly. I, I didn't think the midfield and attackers seemed on the same wavelength at all. But out of possession, they were excellent. Very, very well organised and notably so. Um, they all knew their roles. They knew when to press and more particularly when not to press. 
know, we've talked before about QPRs, you know, their quality ball carriers and ball players and actually pressing them is quite dangerous because they can drift past you. They've got at least three players who can easily beat a man and, and probably more actually if you count lead and that causes problems. So actually West Brom were very smart. There was a lot of times where QPR had the ball for an extended period of time and the West Brom fans were getting a bit itchy. They wanted them to be more proactive and get the tackles in. But I think it was more about trying to hold shape rather than trying to win it back uh, and potentially lose that shape. And it worked very well because QPR had very, very few chances. The most impressive thing for, for West Brom was their composure in, in seeing the game out once they went ahead. For 10, 15 minutes, they just they more or less just kept the ball down the sides, won a lot of throws, just really composed stuff. Again, I don't want to overreact, but when I'm looking for differences between Corbrown and Bruce, you know, you're looking at, at game plans, you're looking at, players looking like they know what to do at any given time in any given circumstance and I think I saw that with the way that West Brom saw this out so 2-1-0 wins uh, in a week for them uh, good for for sort of positive vibes in the fan base some early credit for Corbran not pretty with the ball but clear organisation um, without it that's for sure and I left Loftus Road singing their new song about Corbran loving Estrella Paella and the Baggies uh, so that was nice Yay. I want to say one thing quickly about QPR. As much as it was a frustrating afternoon for them and as much as they, they came up against a, a nut that they couldn't crack and clearly in terms of performances and results, they have regressed a little bit in the last few weeks. I just want to say I really respect the way that QPR play, the way that they try to play, a very technical approach, a possession-based approach, but it's more than just about possession. I really like the amount of quality technical players that they have on the pitch at any given time. We've talked about the ball carrying ability of Irobanum on loan from Villa. We've got Ethan Laird at right back, of course. You've got Chair and Willock as well. Sometimes Tyler Roberts too. They're committed to playing a, a fluid technical style. Beal clearly coaches the patterns pretty well but also gives the players freedom to do their thing on the pitch. I think that should be applauded. I think that should be celebrated. I believe that most managers at this level shy away from what we might call sort of fluidity in their play. They want more control. They want more structure. It all comes back to control generally for managers. And I understand that. And, and frankly, for results and for this level, it's probably the, the, it's probably the percentage play to play the percentages. But from my point of view... This is a really pleasing style of football. It's good to watch and it's in the minority at this level at the moment, I believe. It doesn't mean, by the way, I'm saying QPR are an incredible attacking team that score tons of goals. It doesn't mean that a good defensive team can't frustrate them, can't beat them, can't win the battle against this QPR attack. That's what happened here, really. It's more like a feeling, an aesthetic, I guess, that you get watching QPR in possession, understanding what they're trying to do and how they want to go about it and who they have on the ball. Feeling that I was watching football being played with a commitment to, to technical football, uh, which is what I like to see. And I think that's broadly something to celebrate and enjoy. So there you go. Not a good day for QPR, but I still left with some positives to take. Let's leave behind events at Loftus Road and go to New York, the New York Stadium. Concrete Rod jungle. Where Norwich's dreams were made with a 2-1 win at Rotherham. Not an easy one for the Canaries, George, uh, but a big win for them and for Dean Smith, you'd say. A really big win for Norwich and Dean Smith after the run of form they've been on. Uh, more frustration for Rotherham, who'll feel like they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with 
one of the better teams in the division and, and came out um, behind despite giving as good as they got. Um, I mean, I think the issue for me remains just Rotherham's defence, where um, every team they play against seem to create two plus expected goals. And if you're doing that, it's going to be very, very hard to um, to stay up. Having said that, Rathbone scored a brilliant solo goal, really impressive, good footwork and a good finish. Um, either, you know, to equalise after Kenny McLean put um, Norwich 1-0 up and straight down the other end they went and it was a scrappy goal poor keeping not for the the first time this week um from Johansson uh spinning a shot from Ramsey and then I think it was Wood failed to, to clear the ball was Pookie kind of miscontrolled it and Ramsey followed in and slammed it home to make it 2-1 um so that you know Matt Taylor will be very frustrated they haven't done a hard part of getting back into the game their parity only last for lasted for 30 seconds or so but Norwich will be relieved that they were able to see the game out as they did um, because as we say, I mean, it does feel like it's at that kind of weird stage now where some Norwich fans wouldn't begrudge a defeat away at Rotherham if it meant a change of manager. Um, plenty have really made up their minds. Um, but for Smith himself, you know, the championship is so open and the top end of the championship does look so weak that Norwich, so long as they keep picking up results like this, are still keeping themselves in touch with the top two. Mm. And Smith's still trying to decide what the sort of general formation should be. And it, it, but as far as I can tell, this issue that he has and and the different things that he's trying, it, it stems from Josh Sargent scoring so many goals when Pookie was out injured. Pookie's return, meaning an automatic return to the starting eleven, And then basically, well, how best to get these two players playing together? Um, in the diamond, you get them both up front together have we lost a little bit of of what we get in a 4-2-3-1 in order just to get two individuals um, in, in those central areas? I mean, maybe. Because, you know, Aarons was back in the team here playing right back, McCallum left back. Those are two very attacking wing backs. And in this system, you really need that if you want any sort of attacking width whatsoever. But we also know that Smith quite likes Sam Byram over Max Aarons based on recent evidence. And Byram wasn't available here. Would have been interested to see if he had started. And then in midfield, it's it's Hayden at the base with Sarah and McLean um, as the eights and Ramsey as the ten. I'm just really interested to see where this ends up because you've got Cantwell on the bench. Uh, you've got Ana Hernandez, whose minutes are kind of drying up a little bit because there's no obvious place for him in this team. I, I do feel like there's still a sense of working things out as we go, but it, it's 20 games in now um, and it's not been as, as impressive as we thought. Having said that, they're not a million miles away, are they? They're, they're still within touching distance of the autos. Uh, another comedy moment here, well, two actually, Matt Taylor afterwards. And as soon as we got back in the game, it's, it's a strange phrase to use, but we almost got a little bit horny. <laughs> and they were too overexcited and they were just a bit sort of goosed. Uh, and that didn't help when, you know, they didn't just keep their shape for a few minutes. Norwich ran up the other end and score. Um, they did run out of steam a little bit after that. Norwich saw it out fairly easy. They were barely any shots on goal in the last 10 minutes of the game. Uh, and then one last comedy moment, another EFL viral, great to see, uh, was was um, a fan in the front row. So good. Wes Harding needs to take a long throw, but the ball's wet, no towel available. This Millers fan rips off his jumper, shows a little bit of belly while he does so. We've all been there, very easily done, and then flings it to Harding to dry the ball. Uh, just a wonderful... A wonderful moment. So glad that got caught by the by the iFollow cameras. My favorite reaction was someone who said, Wow, I bet that fan will never wash that jumper now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
it's that thing oh isn't God. it of like it is a bit of a it is something people say when yeah you know, let's say like david beckham signed your england shirt for example you t- you know people say like well i'll never wash it like beckham signed it beckham's touched it i'll never wash that except here like what's been left on his jumper is just the remnants of a soggy ball and that's but, that's that's going to start to smell quite quickly in fairness if if there was a charity auction i reckon you'd get more for that if it was if it hadn't been washed and if it had so you're just washing off value. A charity auction for this punter's jumper that Wes Harding dried a ball on. Yeah. I'd probably bid on it. So would I. Reading 1, Preston 2, George, was Friday night live on Sky. Reading the away winners, in fact, top of the championship away league table this season. Uh, both goals scored uh, very nicely taken uh, by Chad Evans. We haven't seen him scoring goals like that for some time, so so didn't really see them coming. But George, in, in general, Preston just enjoying a little bit of finishing prosperity, having had the opposite for much of the season so far. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this was the total opposite of what we saw from Preston early in the season where their games were fairly end-to-end and there were no goals. This was a game of very, very few chances, um, both keepers being pretty... Um, redundant for most part of the game, especially in the first half where nothing really happened apart from Brad Potts missing one opportunity. But there were three goals scored and that is, this is variance. Variance happening right in front of our eyes, Ali, mm. on Friday night right there. Um, it's, like classic var- Reading. it's like variance safari. We finally <laughs> we finally found <laughs> the big one. Um, classic Reading, you know, wait until I had to say something quite nice about them on the pod to then put in comfortably their worst performance of the season. I mean, they were absolutely terrible on the day. Um, credit to Preston for making them look poor, but like they offered absolutely nothing. It was only an Andy Yid and um, for a, one of their only final third entries pretty much in the whole match. And he was cut down and Lucas Rao with a, a decent penalty um, to get them on the, on the, it was basically, I think it was their first shot on target in the game. Um, very, very poor from them. They will need to bounce back because, you know, I've been mocked by Reading fans, mocked by, Barry Glendening on um, on Football Weekly as well about our Reading prediction. But suddenly, yes, they're up in 12th, but they're only six points clear of the relegation zone. Um, so they're, you know, they're, I'm not saying they're going to get relegated, but they're not out of the woods yet and more performances like, like Friday night and they are going to fall very, very quickly towards that trapdoor. And for North End, it's, it's four wins in five. The only non-win was that terrible defeat against their rivals Blackpool um, all four wins by a single goal and wow would you look at that suddenly you're sixth in the championship league table um, you know these wins have been mostly based on solid performances defensively aside from that Blackpool game they've been finding their finishing boots more so than creating notably more than before I think uh, mix in an ability to defend Leeds uh, and hey presto well, hey Preston you rise to the top of the seeded batch um, I just have an appeal to Preston North, North End fans who listens to the podcast. Don't look at the league table. Don't mention that you're now in the playoff places. Stop it. I can see you looking, I can see you looking now as I'm talking to you. Just stop doing that. Stop looking at the league table. Stop, stop it. The worst thing you can do at this at this moment is focus on the league position, the fact that you've made it into the playoffs, and then judge whatever happens next based on that fact. We were in the playoffs at the start of November. That would be the worst thing you can do from here. A complete waste of time and a misdirection of energy. So don't do that. Now, now get excited. Absolutely. That, I'm, I'm not saying don't get excited. Praise the team. Praise the manager. 
enjoy supporting a team that's winning games because ultimately that's what we're all here for. That's what's fun. And that doesn't always happen. But at some point, get ready for your team to maybe not edge these games four times out of five over a period of five games. And if that happens, don't then decide that something's really wrong, that Lowe's got getting his tactics wrong, that this player or that player is not good enough. It won't be that. It won't be that. So just follow Preston away and enjoy it. But don't look at the league table because only bad things come from that. I will allow Birmingham City fans to have the odd glance at the league table, George, because they're in the top half. They've beaten Stoke 2-1 away from home. They've got 22 points in the last 12, which is the fourth best in the league over a 12-game period. These Eustace Blues, eh? So good. like So impressive what they're doing at the moment. Um, they are... No, I, I kind of want to say they are what Reading thought they were a few a few weeks ago. You know, the 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 team that we predicted to be in the relegation zone, who really struggled over the summer with off field issues, who have gone about their recruitment incredibly well, uh, hired a manager who looks to be, um, you know, someone who is very exciting in terms of what he implements on the on the pitch. It's not necessarily the most um, expansive brand of football, but. He set up his team to be incredibly solid. They don't concede many goals and they've got the attacking talent in Chong, Hogan, um, Hannibal, you know, other players who are able to hurt teams. And, you know, their games are a fairly low margin. They're, they're never going to be particularly, you know, high goal um, in terms of, they're, they're, I don't think they're going to suddenly go and score plenty of goals, but they have um, so much about them in terms of their consistency, their performance that makes them very, very hard to beat. So the first goal was a Scott Hogan pressing from the front. Um, and nicking the ball off Jagielka, the smart finish, Harley Dean at the back post with a, from a set piece for the second. Um, Stoke didn't create too much. You know, the goal came from a penalty, from open play. There was barely anything. So, um, yeah, I think Birmingham are a really tough nut to crack and someone who they are mid-table at the very worst, I'd say, on current evidence. And, and Eustace, I think, is going to become pretty hot property very quickly. Stoke still on this real up and down roller coaster. Alex Neal's quotes after the game suggesting that he basically thinks after being there for two months or whatever it is, he's going to probably have to just start shelling it and going long again and trying to go low margin stuff because he doesn't think that what he wants to do uh, is able to be carried out by these players. Um, that's not exciting, is it? It's not what you want to hear. Um, Ryan, who's a Birmingham fan actually sent a report in on this to the NTT 20 squad did say that he wasn't unimpressed by Stoke like it wasn't terrible could see what Neil wanted from his side um, the difference was confidence basically and an understanding of, of what's expected with with Birmingham full of both of those things having had all the preseason to prepare so not the day for Stoke City uh, a 1-0 win for Luton at Blackpool now yes Nathan Jones may well be leaving Luton Town to become Southampton manager but you won away at Blackpool you're still thinking about the bad news, though, aren't you? What did you make of it? A weird game. I thought it was a, a, a strange um, kind of classic Luton, I guess. Just absolute mayhem in both boxes. Uh, Blackpool missed loads of chances in the game to to get themselves ahead. Um, it wasn't the kind of solid uh, Luton that we've maybe become accustomed to at times. Um, Blackpool gave it as good as they got, um, and you know, especially after going 1-0 behind, had had the chances to, to go and get a point, but weren't able to do so. Um, yeah, it was a big goal for Luke Berry, who, of course, had massive injury issues uh, this season, has barely played, um, but was able to, to steer her home to get a, a really important three points. A, a big win for Luton because the, the form had started to slide since uh, 
in the AFL podcast who had said that they were um, automatic promotion candidates. Um, and, you know, for Blackpool, he'll be Michael Appleton and the, and the fans would have seen a, a pretty good performance there and won't be too upset with what they saw against difficult opposition, even if this time they were unable. You know, I think Blackpool have done well this season to get points in games where they maybe were second best. And uh, this time there wasn't much in them, but they came away with uh, with nothing. Five away wins out of nine for Luton now. That stopped a runner three without a win. Um, but that Watford thrashing behind them now. But what's looming in their immediate future? We do not know. I was quite excited for Nathan Jones to be managing Luton away at Stoke in midweek and the the, the spicy narrative that that um, has flavouring it. But now there's there's more on the agenda, as discussed at the top of the show. Um, Sunderland nil, Cardiff won. George Hudson's got things flowing the right way again. It's amazing how much easier football is when you have 11 men on the pitch. Definitely. I mean, it's incredible if you look through his um, time as caretaker manager so far, their record with him. I don't have the exact stats to hand, but the record with, when they do have 10 men, sorry, 11 men rather than 10 men, um, having had two sendings off early in QPR and Swansea games is, is very good. And they were so impressive here. I mean, they went to the Stadium of Light and they were by far the better team. You know, they batted Sunderland for large portions of the game. Um, Sunderland had Ellis, Ellis Sims back and it kind of felt like there were almost some teething problems in having a focal point up front again. You know, they, they were unable to really get him any service. I saw some Sunderland fans talk about him being lazy, which is always, I think, quite tiresome when you've got a player whose job it is is to literally play between the posts and and off the last man. Um, you know, you don't really want them to be running around like, like a headless chicken. Um, but yeah, I think for Cardiff, Hudson has done more than enough now, in my view, to, to warrant getting the job full time. I've seen there's, there was reports that Dean Whitehead is, is going to the club as a as a first-team coach, which would suggest if they're building a coaching team around Hudson, um, it doesn't look like the, the long term is for him to be uh, to be in charge, and, and rightly so, because they are they, well, they look a far better outfit now than they did under, under Steve Morris. And in terms of the drawn games, Swans came back from 2-0 down to draw two all against Wigan. Borough and Bristol City shared the points uh, at the Riverside and Millwall nil, Hull nil was a match most notable for one quite a stupid man. Yeah, horrible tackle, wasn't it? Shout out to Lee on the squad for that one. Can't claim it <laughs> myself. Um, just gives us time before we move on to talk about the newest manager in the championship, appointed by Hull City at the end of last week, George. Liam Rossinia, who we've worked with before, someone that we have a lot of time for, as someone that I know viewers of Sky Sports' EFL coverage miss for his uh, insight and punditry. He's now a championship manager. Having left Derby, uh, his interim role was ended so they could appoint Paul Warren last month. He has literally fallen upwards. Uh, what do you make of the appointment for Hull, for Rossinia? I think it's a really good appointment for the fans. Um, you know, Ashwin Irishali has come in at Hull and it's fair to say things haven't really started necessarily too well in terms of the performances on the pitch. The Shotter Avalad's appointment was a, was a bad one. Um, they brought in some pretty good players. So, there is hope, uh, but as the club, um, you know, the club hasn't been particularly close to the fans for a long time after the Alam ownership. But it does feel like going and getting someone in Rosinia who has an, a lasting relationship, someone who quite clearly cares about the club himself, to come in and be the manager is is important because it really uh, it, it ensures that the identity of the club is safe with someone who understands it. Um, in terms of a footballing appointment, I also think it's it's really exciting and really good. He is someone who. Um, is very intelligent when he speaks about 
football on TV. Um, as we saw, he basically got a, a coaching job off the back of his impressive analysis on Sky. He's part of a, he's worked under Philippe Cocker and Wayne Rooney at, at Derby. Um, and then I th- thought the job he did early in the season at Derby was also very, very good. Um, so I am um, positive. I, I think he's going to want to implement a certain style of play, which can be possession heavy, which will be interesting to see how that works out. Um, we can't judge much from the game against Millwall, given um, they had a man sent off in a Stupinian, um, but they look pretty solid. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I definitely think they've got a better chance of staying up now that he's there than I did before. So are you saying that from saying relatively interesting bits of analysis on the EFL on Sky Sports <laughs> leads directly to a job in the dugout of an EFL club within? Because mm, no, we're years? not, we're not real football men. Oh, you think I was talking about me? Oh, no, no. Yeah. I thought I thought it was you. Gary O'Neill's managing in the Prem now, mate. So probably you in the Champions League next. I'm not I'm not a real football man. I think you are. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about this as well. I'm interested to see the, the style of play, whether it will be as uh possession-y as it was at Derby, if that's if that's really the way that he he wants to put his stamp on the team. Uh I would enjoy that. I, I'm I'm looking for more teams in the championship to play like that, to be honest, at the moment. Um if, if Hull are, are serious about spending enough money and buying enough players that, you know, naturally in a year or two, they'll start probably challenging at the top, a possession-based style is probably the, the best way to go in terms of, of the sort of manager that you want to take over. But that feels a long way off for me, for, for the club. Um, clearly, they have a, a big job on their hands, just easing away from the relegation zone to start with. So I'm not, if I'm honest, massively positive on their short-term chances mainly just based on this this quite weird squad makeup and and a group of players who i'm sure are on pretty chunky wages that seem to blow cold more than they blow hot maybe rossinia can change that i hope he has the answers and look forward to seeing how he does right unfortunately we have to say goodbye to george for uh, very worthy scheduling reasons but um should we talk about something different how about the fa cup first round let's whet the appetite before I get into it. nothing quite like it is there the sounds of Alva Church fans witnessing celebrating their first goal against Cheltenham in a 2-1 win the guy muttering oh my god oh my god oh my god we all know that feeling there is nothing better than that and then sounds from inside the Alva Church dressing room it's not quite Chorley bellowing Adele but it's not bad at all Really, really good scenes, and and that can kick off uh, a little mini FA Cup first round roundup segment. It's one of my favourite things in English football, uh, and therefore I think it's only right that we recap it. Uh, of course, the the funny thing, in a sense, is that we're so focused on the EFL, we're such supporters of EFL clubs uh, in general, and particularly over their Premier League counterparts. And um, but the thing that I find most interesting and fun in the FA Cup first round, tends to be EFL clubs losing matches to non-league clubs. So um, with apologies to, to those EFL clubs that didn't have a great weekend, let's start with 
non-league beating league um, because that is what it's all about really uh, Alva Church's win at Cheltenham a 2-1 win was absolutely brilliant Cheltenham clearly completely off their game um, and they're very highly rated and pretty high performing young centre-back on loan from West Brom Caleb Taylor did not have a particularly good afternoon um, stumbled on the ball in the lead up to the first goal uh, and Danny Waldron uh, the star for Alva Church getting his second nipping in front of, of Caleb Taylor the sort of rebound that you'd want your centre-back to get through um, first. Alva Church, the, the lowest ranked side left uh, in the competition and 96 places below uh, Cheltenham. We also had Chippenham beating Lincoln. This was, uh, it was a weekend of, of some great moments, but Joe Hanks's back heel goal to win it was absolutely brilliant. Hanks very much, Joe, from the long throw, flick on, back heeled in, Chippenham into the next round. Kings Lynn, beat Doncaster and deservedly so. This wasn't even particularly smashy and grabby. They head through uh, and I loved seeing Farnborough beating Sutton 2-0. Farnborough channeling the spirit of 2003. It's it's one of the cup runs that I remember so strongly from when I was a football-obsessed kid. Uh, I'm pretty sure I ended up managing them on, uh, what would that have been, Champ Man or, or yeah, Champ Man 0203 CM4, was it? Um because they, they got all the way to the third round, I, I believe it was. They lost 5-1 to Arsenal. Rocky Baptiste scored a goal in the second half. Uh, and that was a famous cup run. Of course, the, the funny thing on the Wikipedia page for Farnborough is, uh, it says, following the 5-1 defeat to Arsenal, manager Graham Wesley left the club and took seven players with him as he moved to Stevenage Borough. And that period of the club's history is... Yeah, it's worth talking to someone who knows about Farnborough because... A former colleague of mine follows Farnborough. There's there's some interesting stuff around the club around that time. Uh, Chesterfield of the National League beat Northampton in League 2 1-0 as well. We also had Curzon Ashton holding Cambridge to a draw. They'll go back to the Abbey for a replay. Torquay's 2-all draw against Derby from 2-0 down. A helping hand or a helping tug from Aaron Cashin. Penalty and red card for him at 2-0. Scored by Asa Hall. Uh, and then the equaliser Goodwin on loan from Stoke. Um, steering in a shot from the edge for some unbelievable scenes at Torquay. And it's funny because you often get people saying things like, ah, oh, they didn't even win the game, but they're celebrating as if they'd won the FA Cup. Well, Gary Johnson came out after the game, the Torquay manager, and he said, it feels like we've won the FA Cup. And that's what it's all about. Um, they'll go back to Derby for a replay. Buxton of the sixth tier are through again. I remember them from last year. This time last year, they made it to the second round. They lost to Morecambe. That game was live on TV. Clearly used that TV money well because they, they won the league, the Northern Prem, I think it was. Uh, and now they're in the National League North uh, and going well again uh, in the FA Cup. Um, in fact, sixth tier teams did brilliantly over the weekend. There were 12 teams from the National League North and South in the FA Cup first round. Um, five of them won. Four of them have replays and only three of them lost. So a really strong performance from National League North and South teams. I can't wait for the uh, second round draw. In terms of EFL matchups with league position based surprises, I think we have to start with Grimsby 5, Plymouth 1, Argyle uh, only bettered by Arsenal in terms of points per game in the league this season in English football. Uh, but there they are heading to Grimsby and losing 
5-1. As soon as that draw was made, I remember thinking that's that's just got big Grimsby crowd under the lights. Well, probably under the lights by the end of the game anyway. Just like just getting it done over a team that's probably, probably focused elsewhere. That's not to say that Argyle played a weak inside here. You, you did have the youngster Jenkins Davis starting in the 10 role uh, because of injuries to uh, Mayer and to Finazaz. But Cosgrove and Hardy up front. You had Connor Grant and Edwards at wing back. Mumba was on the bench. Uh, you had Butcher and Randall in centre midfield and Galloway, Scar and Longvike with Cooper in goal. So it was a pretty much their first team with a couple of exceptions. Uh, but Grimsby absolutely did the business. Some of the goals they scored were just joyful, gleeful as well. And the highlights definitely, definitely worth watching back. It'd be interesting to see uh, if if either side is affected by it. Grimsby positively, Argyle negatively uh, ahead of their next games. I suspect probably not, uh, but Grimsby march on. I would not want to go to Blundell Park away from home to play in a cup tight. Paul Hurst's team's always so well drilled, so well organised. I think they suit cup competition quite well. You might remember that incredible playoff campaign in the National League last season. I don't get hugely excited about EFL versus EFL ties in the FA Cup first round. I think that's a view that's shared uh, by most. Uh, but Harrogate won one nil at Bradford. That would have been uh, a huge, huge victory for their fans, of course. Um, they, they lost against Bradford not long ago, not going well in the league. So won their win at Bradford. Um, really, really pleasing. Uh, and then Crew beating Leighton Orient. Certainly a surprise based on their league positions in League Two. Winning goal from Sambu, uh, who felt like he really needed that one, Sambu. Um, Crew news, uh, which some of you may have seen, is that Alex Morris, the manager, has stepped back from that role. He's not leaving the club. Uh, he's going to to rejoin the the coaching staff, uh, supporting at first Lee Bell, who stepped up to take uh, interim charge, and then, of course, whoever gets appointed permanently. And Morris, after the game, explained that this is a, a personal decision based on some really difficult circumstances in his private life that, that have had a big impact on his ability to do the job of of manager, which, as we appreciate and as he points out, is is just so all-consuming, is so challenging. So just wanting to wish uh, Alex Morris all the best, really. Um, I heard him on the Railway Men podcast a couple of weeks ago. Speaks really well. Um, clearly a very, very talented coach who's had a, a really tough time uh, recently and that's impacted on his ability to manage crew. So they will uh, move forward, Lee Bell, in interim charge for the moment. And that's it for this week's episode, uh, which I hope you've enjoyed. I've certainly enjoyed chatting with George about Nathan Jones to Southampton, about the championship weekend. We got some uh, Tuesday night action as well in the championship. Uh, and we're really enjoying covering these leagues this season. We hope that you're enjoying listening to the pod. Uh, if you are, think about joining the NCT 20 squad, if only just for uh, the two-week free trial. We really think we've got uh, a place that is both fun, entertaining sort of place where you want to spend time uh, and also uh, really good for people to make contacts with, with other people who love the EFL as much as we do, um, who enjoy uh, finding out more about players and clubs and managers and certain situations and big talking points. Um, we've got a separate 
betting group as well for people who like betting on the EFL. We've got a few competitions that we run through there. We've got a gaming channel, which is about to get super lively with the release of FM23. There'll be some squad challenges. So if you're struggling for a save and you want someone to talk about your FM save with, again, the squad is the place to be. It's it's a lovely, lovely community. We feel uh, every single day very, very proud of it really because it comes under the NTT20 name but also very grateful for the the 150 odd who make it such a great place you can join two week free trial use the link in the description it just feels apt at the moment where there seems to be a lot of uh, uncertainty around the future of Twitter which is of course where we and I dare say a lot of you spend a lot of your time um, reading and uh, contributing to football discourse Um, it might be that there are better places to be. Uh, We think that the NTT20 squad is a great place to be. So uh, if you like, give it a go. Sign up for a a two-week free trial. And we look forward to seeing you in there. Make sure you say hi. If you do sign up, uh, introduce yourself. Let us know where you're from, who you support, that sort of thing. Be good to see you in there. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been sponsored by Betfair. And as ever, we'll be back in the second half of the week with a betting show. Can't wait. Speak then. Go well.